Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're in the second half of that chapter in Paul's letter, working our way through this epistle. And we are in chapter 2. Tonight we'll be reading Ephesians 2 verses 13 through 18, picking up some of the language of what we looked at last week for the sake of context. Every newspaper, virtually on every page, tells the story of man's alienation from man, of of hatred and envy, of condescension, violence and fear. You don't have to read very far in the newspaper or watch much TV news to know it and see it. In order for Jesus to bring about reconciliation of all things, he has to deal with the division and the hostility among people. The great divide in Jesus' own day was that between Jew and Gentile. There was great hostility. And his answer to that divide is our only hope of an answer to what divides us from God and others as well. And I want you to hear the hope of that answer. Consider how it applies in your own experience. From Ephesians chapter 2 then, let me invite you to consider God's word tonight, beginning at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. It has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you know how good and precious this word about Jesus is, far better than us. Oh, we pray that you would grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, to know, to trust, that you would spare my words from error, that you would deafen our ears from all but what is good and true. For we ask it in Jesus' name and ask that you would help us by his Holy Spirit. Amen. In the adventures of Tom Sawyer, you remember perhaps about Tom and Huck. Tom didn't want Huck Finn in his gang. They had this dialogue going that Mark Twain tells us about. Now, Tom, Huck said, Ain't you always been friendly to me? You wouldn't shut me out, would you, Tom? Huck, I wouldn't want to, and I don't want to. 
But what would people say? Why, they'd say, hmm, Tom Sawyer's gang, pretty low characters in it. And they'd mean you, Huck. And you wouldn't like that, and neither would I. Mark Twain picked up in that story something of history, didn't he? Pretty low character, huh? Can't let you into my gang. And that's, that's what the Jews were about in Jesus' day. What would people say? Uh, Judaism, huh? They let the Gentiles in? People like that? Are you kidding me? Yeah, pastor said it this way. We still play that game today. We screen out our little world. Anybody who doesn't enhance our image, anybody who doesn't strengthen our viewpoint, anybody who doesn't boost our pride or reinforce our prejudice or feed our ego, and if you don't do any of those things, then you're not in our gang. But the body of Christ isn't supposed to be that way. The body of Christ is made up of all those who love the Lord Jesus, who belong to him. And Paul, the apostle, says we're to love everybody who belongs to that body. Paul tells us here the way we do that, the way we do it. There are obstacles to it, of course. Last week we saw, we remember how the Jews were in. They were near to God, but the Gentiles, they had it worse in that day. I mean, They had a whole history of being far off. Far away, they had no promise of the Messiah to grow up with. They were not part of the nation and the people. They didn't really belong in Israel. They, they didn't have a sense and a feeling that they really belonged to the people of God. They, they didn't have all the promises, the covenances, the assurances of God's mercy and the hope of, of a redeemer. They didn't have hope in God in the world, Paul says. And they didn't have any of that. But now, verse 13, but now he says something has changed. Now you who were far off, the Gentiles, you have been brought near to, near to God and near to God's people. You didn't do it yourself or for yourself. You were dead and God made you alive. You were far off and he brought you near. Near to God. Near how? By the blood of Christ, we saw last week. By the blood of Jesus. Why does it have to be through the blood of Jesus? It pays to remember. Why? Because God is loving and he wants to bring you near. And God is holy and he is, he is against. And can't be anything other than against because he's good. He is against evil. And justice demands it be punished. But because he's loving and he's just, he brings you near through the cross where love and justice kiss. And so tonight, in verses 14 through 18, Paul answers then the questions for us. Who is it that brings us near to God? He reminds you of that. Who brings us near to God and one another? You've been brought near, he says. Who did it? And how does he bring us near God and one another? And what does that call us to? Those three questions then tonight. In the first place, who is it that brings us near to God and one another? Verse 14, he says, he himself is our peace. Speaking of Christ, Christ is our peace. He's not, something, he's not talking about something that God gives you. He's not talking about you having a peaceful, easy feeling. He's not talking about you being in difficult circumstances and you're a little unsettled and anxious. The big exam is coming up. You don't know what to do. You pray. God gives you a sense of peace peace or peacefulness. That's not what he's describing here. He's talking about God placing you in a state of peace. 
Whereas before you were in a state of war, hostility. You were an, en- you were an enemy and he made you his friend. That's the kind of peace he's talking about. Jesus is our peace. There's a fascinating story of Don and Carol Richardson who were, were missionaries to a tribe that, that, that loved the story of Jesus, his arrest, his uh, torture, and his crucifixion. And they loved that story because Judas to them was the hero. Their highest value and virtue was treachery. They, they applauded when Judas betrayed Jesus. They thought he was the hero of the story. How do you, how do you bring the, the gospel, the good news, to a people who have values like that? Don and Carol didn't know what to do. They didn't, they didn't know how to explain the goodness of the gospel until a tribe up the river had attacked and there were a series of weeks of war with many people dying because of this fighting. And finally, Don said to one of the leaders of the tribe, if you don't stop fighting, we're going to leave your tribe. And that was a serious threat, which they took seriously because they liked Carol's medical care that she was giving. And they liked the metal instruments, steel implements that he had. And it was kind of a status symbol for them to have this white couple living among them. And so the chief of Don's tribe realized that he had to pay the price of peace. And what did he do? He arranged a meeting. He arranged a meeting with the warring tribe. And they got all the warriors together in two lines. One tribe here with a gap and another tribe there. And they lined them all up. And the chief took his newborn son out of the arms of his own wife as she collapsed sobbing in grief. And he walked up the line of one tribe and they laid their hands on this child, every warrior touching this child. And then he walked across that gap and he stood in front of the chief of the other tribe and he handed his son to that tribal chief. And that man walked that baby up those warriors and they laid their hands on him and then they turned and they went into the woods and hostilities ceased. That baby, the chief told Don when he asked, had become the peace child. As long as that child lived, there would be no more war between the tribes. Anybody who killed the peace child would himself be killed. And so in a flash of insight, Don knew how he could bring the gospel to these stone-aged people. Bring the truth about Jesus to them. He spoke of the war that rages between God and mankind and how our heavenly father sent his own beloved son into this world as his peace child to make peace between God and man. And Jesus is the peace child, he told them. That's the title of the amazing story he tells. I don't want to press that illustration too far. There are things about it that don't agree with the gospel, but there are things that do. And what I want you to see is is, is kind of a weird thing that Paul says here. He himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. You might have expected him to say, as he will say, he makes peace. He gives peace, but he is our peace. What is he saying there? He's saying that Jesus is the only one who can set you at peace with God and make enemies friends. And you need to be in him. You need to be united to him. To have him 
is to have peace with God and God to be at peace with you. Where where there's conflict between peoples, you know that it takes both parties to reconcile. In in marriage, Melinda and I have experienced this in a whole variety of ways. Now, she's been sick for two weeks, so I didn't even have the heart to ask her if I could tell some story that would really be vulnerable and unveiling about our marriage, you know. I, I picked one she would have no objection to, but we came into the marriage with different expectations. For me, I thought, when you celebrate a holiday, there is no other day to celebrate it on than that holiday. But I also thought birthdays, you know, anytime you want, I'm ready. We can celebrate my birthday for next year now if you want. Melina was the exact opposite. You must celebrate your birthday on its day. But Christmas, you can celebrate mid-January if you want to. I mean, who really cares? Hey, you get the point. But what do we do? How did two conflict avoiders resolve that issue? Well, well, perhaps you could guess. We celebrate both ways. Birthday's on the day, and it seems like all month long, and holidays on the day, and whenever we can get together with extended family and do it again, we'll do it. (laughs) I guess we party a lot at our house. My, my point, and it may be a silly way of illustrating, is this, that you, you need both parties to come together. Now, it helps when both of you get what you want. Life doesn't always work out that way, I realize. It's nice when it does. But the amazing thing about God becoming man, about Jesus being both man and God in one person, is that he reconciles in himself both parties in the conflict. In Jesus, heaven and earth are reconciled. In Jesus, God and man meet together and are reconciled. In him, even Jew and Gentile meet and are reconciled. Why do I say that? You're saying Jesus was clearly Jewish, a prominent, maybe the preeminent Jew. I mean, at least in terms of his obedience, he was the only one. And that's right. He is the promised seed of Father Abraham, right? The Savior promised to Abraham and through him to every Jew who believes. But Jesus is also the preeminent Gentile, the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3 verse 15, back in the garden, promised to Eve in the hours or days of her rebellion, When God said, I will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the enemy. And Jesus is that seed too. The promised seed given by promise to all humanity before the Jewish nation ever even existed. And so in Christ, God and man, man and God together in one person come together. And in Christ, God has come to man and said, I'm for you, and with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. You have done all that I require. And in Christ, man has come to God and said, I am for you. Here I am, O God. I have come to do your will. And he does it. God came to man and said, I will be God to you, and you will be my people. And in Christ, man has come to God and said, I will obey you, I will be your people, and you will be my God. In Jesus, it all comes together. In Jesus, 
You are at peace with God. God is reconciled to you and you to God. There was once a Christian stonemason who fell to the ground from a considerable height. He was carried home fatally injured. And a clergyman was called to see him on his deathbed. And he was told, the clergyman told him, it's time to make your peace with God. Make my peace with God, he said softly. Why, that was made almost 2,000 years ago when my great Lord paid it all. On the accursed tree. Christ is my peace. And I am safe. Do you understand that? He. He alone. He alone reconciles God and man and man and God. And he alone can reconcile man and man. One another. Jew and even Gentile. How does he do that? The Apostle Paul tells you four ways in verses 14 through 16. How does he bring peace between people? Four things. He tells you that Jesus broke something down, he abolished something, he creates something, and he reconciles something. Four things. If you'll go back to verse 14, he says, Jesus, he himself being our peace, he has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, he's made one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what's he talking about there? He's speaking of the temple court. Uh, And it was a symbol... The temple system was a symbol of the division and the alienation, the separation. The temple in Paul's day had been built by Herod the Great to replace the old temple that had built in Nehemiah's day. And it wasn't, the old one wasn't nearly as glorious as the new one under Herod the Great. It was overlaid with gold. It was, it was, a, a, it was the glory of the city. And it sat on a raised platform on the, what we even today is called the Temple Mount. And it was surrounded by courtyards. So you had the temple complex. You had, you had the main thing, which was the, the holy place. The, the building where God dwelt symbolically in the midst of his people. And, and, and then you had around that building a court of priests. Only male priests could go in that court. And, and, and then east of that court, you had the court of men. The court of the Israelite. But only only men, lay men, and of course the priests going in, could come there. And then you had, beyond that, another court, the court of women. And the, the Israelite woman could only go as far as that court and had to stop while the men went further in. And so then it passed the court of women. You had five stairs down. You walked five steps down, and, and on a platform there, there was a raised wall, almost five feet high and almost four and a half feet wide of stone. This massive wall around that, And and through a gap in the wall, you walked 14 more steps down to the court of the Gentiles. This is the court where in the Gospels, Jesus will talk about, my house is to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. It's the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be a court, a, a place for evangelism, for sharing the good news with the Gentiles. At least they could get to hear and hear the good news even if they couldn't get inside and up the stairs. But, but still, it, it separated, it divided. And there was a plaque, there were plaques around in both Greek and Latin uh, on the wall saying, not trespassers will be prosecuted, but, but in effect, trespassers will be executed. We've discovered two of those signs, one in 1871, 
is in a museum in Istanbul, Turkey, and there's another one discovered in 1935. The one in Istanbul is a white uh, limestone slab approximately a meter across, and it reads, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Do you understand what they're saying? Gentiles, this far, but no farther. There was a lot of seeker sensitivity in that day. There wasn't a, come on, y'all, you're welcome, join us up the staircase. No, 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 no. Paul almost died in a riot, we're going to read shortly in the book of Acts. He almost died in a riot because some Jews thought he had brought a Gentile up the stairs, though he hadn't. It's the thing for which he was rescued by the guards and then went to trial for and ended up imprisoned, awaiting trial on this issue. But anyway, he hadn't violated the law, but it was that serious. There was a great barrier between Jew and Gentile symbolized in those steps and walls and public warnings. It was a dividing wall of hostility. Interesting, when Paul writes this letter, that wall still exists in Jerusalem at that time. It's not until 70 AD when the Romans conquer that that wall itself is destroyed. And yet Paul speaks of this dividing wall of hostility broken down so that it's no longer near and far, but you have been brought near. Now, how did Christ break down that wall? Not with a sledgehammer. He didn't kick it down. He did it in himself. Verse 15, how? By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. In other words, Paul moves from this image of of a a dividing wall of hostility then to, to speak of the reality behind the wall that Jesus tore down. The reality was the Israelites had all these ceremonial laws and commandments and ordinances and rules about what they could eat and what they could drink and what they could wear. And, and, and those rules, those ceremonial dietary laws, those separated Jews from Gentiles. I mean, the kind of food a Jew could eat made it almost inevitable that they could never eat with Gentiles, could never visit them in their homes. Uh, you didn't develop relationships, and you weren't, de- you weren't supposed to develop relationships, not, not intimate relationships, because of the fear that you would get caught up in the Gentile idolatry. The dress code, the ritual law, all of it was designed to make the Jews distinct from all the nations around them for a limited time to serve God's purposes. And now the Apostle Paul is telling you that Jesus, the Jew, has abolished that ceremonial law in himself because he fulfilled it. Jesus fulfills all the ceremonies of sacrifice, temple worship, priestly robes and garbs, food, everything else, and he, and he, and he ends them. So there's no hard distinction between the people of God and the people of their community in those kinds of ways. We might go so far as to say there's no such thing as Christian dress, Christian t-shirts, Christian whatever in that regard, Christian special foods. Jesus made all foods clean. And so he, he broke down that, which was a dividing wall between communities, and it created hostility and Pride and arrogance, self-righteous condescension, and envy and hatred. 
And then the third thing he did is he created. Verse 15, he created one new man in place of the two. He created a new kind of humanity. It's not that he makes all Jews into Gentiles or all Gentiles into Jews. It's that he makes a very new, even a third kind of humanity here. So if we ask the question, how do you today get Asians and Africans and Latinos and Yankees and Southerners to get along, accept one another, welcome one another, love one another, embrace one another, when sometimes language and food and music and dress and custom are so different, how do you do that? You make them all, the Bible says, something new, something altogether new. You make them one in a new humanity that's united to Christ. And that new thing is bigger than all the things that divide. It's more important than any of the other issues. That's how the Bible could say people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, and people group will be together in heaven as one new community of love, getting along with one another, but not all by becoming, you know, white, Western, middle-class English speakers who have a Bible. You know what I mean? This is a theme in, the, in Paul's letters again and again. In Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn... There in Colossians 3, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the Apostle Paul saying in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, again, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. He's wrapped everybody up, Jew, Gentile, male, female, all together in one new humanity. It's a huge deal. Listen, this is important for us. The distinctions matter less than the commonality. And there can be distinction without division. And the fact that there's distinction doesn't mean that there's division. You can have white Americans with a certain kind of culture worshiping together in one place and peoples of other cultures and places worshiping in another place, all worshiping the same Christ, and they are one in Christ. And the fact that one meets there and one meets here does not, in and of itself, in any way say that there's division at all. Because there is no division in the body of Christ. There's one head and one body. That's not to say we all get along like we ought to. It's not to say that we all don't try to maintain the unity like we ought to. But Christ has already made us one. You can't undo it, however bad you are at living it. You can hurt people, no doubt. You can grieve the Holy Spirit of God by an unloving attitude to people who are different than you, even in the body of Christ. Absolutely. But it will never make you un-one 
with those people. Jesus did that. And so the early Christians spoke of a church as a third race. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, and then there was the church that Jesus built. And it's a community that is at peace with God. It's a community that's brought into peace with one another. And insofar as it is up to us, the Bible says, we are to maintain the peace with one another. And so do you, do you try to make other people feel at home? Christians who are different than you, brothers and sisters who are different than you, do you try to welcome them? You, you ought to try to make them feel at home. You're, they're family is what the apostle is saying to us. And if your heart doesn't care at all, if you really just want to write people off in the body of Christ, people who profess Christ but who aren't like you, then maybe you haven't understood the gospel at all. He broke down the wall. He abolished the law. He creates one new humanity. And fourthly, he reconciles us to God and God and to one another. He reconcil- and reconciled means he brings together again. Once there was hostility, and now it's no more. Once our evil nature was in rebellion, and we hated God. And God was against us, but no more. God is for us in Christ. Through the cross, he ends the hostility because Jesus obeyed the commandments of God. Jesus perfectly did what the law required. Jesus perfectly satisfied the demands of the law that evil should be punished and he did it for us and in our place. And you and I are righteous. We stand righteous, perfectly right with God in the righteousness of Christ. This is important stuff, friends. God's purpose is to build a visible alternative society. And we want to, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, we want to be an expression of that alternative society. Where we don't relate to one another and think of one another or talk about one another by what color is our skin, what language is our first language, what our IQ is, what school we go to, what part of town we're from, what accent we have, what we did on our holiday, how much money we have, whether we're rich or we're poor, black or white, smart or struggling. We're all one. And we're all for one another because God is for us in Christ. He brings us together. And so that's the second thing he tells you about how he does it, those four things. But then what does this call us to? How do we respond to this besides what we've said? Well, notice Paul's language in verses 17 and 18. Two very quick things. The Apostle Paul says, on the one hand, we need to receive it. And on the other hand, we need to make use of it. Uh, This liberty, this freedom, this oneness that we have. And if I can find my text, we'll get to verse 17. In the first place, he says, "What, what should we do? Well, notice what Jesus did with this. Verse 17, he, and he, having, having been declared the one who is our peace, and that he made peace, what did Jesus do? He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to you who were near. In other words, what Jesus did is, having achieved it, he announced it. And the announcement followed the achievement, meaning he's speaking here not of Jesus' earthly ministry before his death, and the things that he said, but Jesus, after his resurrection, pronouncing peace as he does with his very first words to his disciples, peace be with you. And as Jesus has been doing ever since, through 
the feet of those who bring good news. Through those who proclaim the gospel, Jesus continues to preach peace to Jew and Gentile. And he does it by going to them. He came to us when we were far off. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And he brought us near. This is why, friends, we need to send preachers out into the world, all over the world. The gospel came to us. We didn't expect people to come to the gospel. We need to go. And we need to fund and pray for missionaries and preachers and teachers to go. Because this peace that Christ has established is a peace you must embrace. If he made it, and it's for everybody indiscriminately, and it's done, why preach it? Why present it? Why offer it? Why would Paul say, we, we implore you, be reconciled to God? The, the point is this. If you're outside of Christ, you are his enemy. You live against him. You know that in your own conscience, you don't even live up to your own expectations let alone living up to God's expectations. And all your failures put him at odds with you and you at odds with him. And you can't create peace between you and God. You don't decide the terms of peace between you and God, but you need to embrace the peace that is accomplished for you in Christ. It's found in him. He's the Prince of Peace. Just embrace Jesus and he's your peace with God. So we need to preach it. We need to send people to preach it. So we need, we need to do that. But this, the last thing is this. What else do we need to do? We need to use it. We need to make use of it. That's Paul's point in verse 18. Through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In other words, he's saying, God has set you on the ground of, of peace. He set you on a playing field of grace. And now that you're at peace with God, go to God. Access, you make use of your access to God. And he doesn't just mean that the way has been opened up, that sort of a door has swung in and you can pass through. But the word access there is a word used specifically to describe the person who walks you into the presence of greatness. It's, It's the person who actually introduces you into the presence of the king, for instance. So that you get a favorable hearing. So that you're welcomed into that person's presence. That's the word Jesus is, uh, it's, it's used of Jesus here. He, he gets you into the Oval Office, as it were. He gets you into the king's own throne room to gain a fever, favorable hearing before God the Father. So some of you need to make use of this access that you already have in Christ. It's yours. You don't conjure it up. You don't make it happen. You don't whip yourself into an emotionally good state or or some kind of better spiritual place than you were moments ago in order to gain access. The access is in Christ. It always has and will be. So some of you with a tender conscience and you're always beating yourself up about how, how bad a Christian you are. First of all, there's, there's no very good Christians. So you're in good company. We make but very little progress in Christ's likeness. Jesus was the truly good Christian. But if you are continuing to destroy yourself and beat yourself and you say, well, the Father would never listen to me. The Father, the Father could possibly hear me. 
you need to realize you can come right into the presence of the Father like a child into the arms of its loving Father because Jesus gets you there. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy, love, and grace that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray you would seal this word to our hearts and grow our confidence in him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to stand and sing in response. Arise, my soul, arise.